0: These things are things that God has done to create a unity in the body of Christ. He's made us members of a body. He's taken. He's put His Spirit within us. And then it says, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, every believer in that body of Christ has the same hope. Now, as you talk to different believers uh about what their hope is you may find that uh, different people have different ideas about what that hope is right um, when you read in the in the scripture it talks about our blessed hope in connection with the with the resurrection with the rapture when we understand the mystery and the difference between mystery and prophecy we see that there is a, a catching away that takes place at the end of this dispensation of grace, where we're caught up in the in the air, caught up in the clouds to, to ever be with the Lord, and and that there's a difference between that and some other passages that talk about a, you know the the resurrection of uh, Old Testament saints and and some of that we see some of those distinctions. Um, we have a we have a hope. In that, it's that, it's that, uh, manifestation of the sons of God. We have, we have a hope in that. We know our hope is not just to, to, to live a good life and then, and then die and, and no longer be, uh, aware of anything or just pass out of existence, but we have an eternal hope. We have a hope to where, where this unity that currently, you know, we have in a spiritual sense, where we are going to be ever be with the lord and actually you know live that unity in a very practical sense and and we have a hope in that now you go out and you talk to different people and and uh, some people uh have various beliefs about what that hope is uh it doesn't change the fact that for the body of christ there only is one hope right um that that not you know, a different hope because this denomination teaches one thing and this denomination teaches another thing and so we all have different hopes. There's only one hope. Only one of those positions is right. Uh, only one of those things is, is the truth of what's going to take place with the body of Christ. We ought to be endeavoring to make sure that what we are hoping for or, or waiting for is what the Bible describes as the hope of the believer. And so there's one hope for the body of Christ. There's one Lord, and of course that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, again, you know, some some people hear them teach about the Lord Jesus Christ. You wonder, you wonder if they have the same Lord. And of course, the Apostle Paul warned about those who would come preaching another Jesus. Realize that not everybody who talks about Jesus is talking about this one Lord, right? And uh, there are a lot of people who have uh, you know a lot of ideas about who Jesus was and who Jesus is and and uh, a lot of ideas that don't match up with the word of God but we have one Lord one faith Now here you know he's not talking about the believers individual subjective faith or or what they believe but there's one faith. If you go to Romans. Go over to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 verse 12 here is as Paul is talking about his desire to come to Rome and to preach to them. You see he says in Romans 1 verse 12, he says, that is that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. It wasn't that Paul had his faith and they had their faith, but there was a mutual faith. They both had the same faith. Uh, you know, it's increasingly today people, people, uh, use the term people of faith to mean religious people, right? Usually when you hear that term, it's, uh, somebody's kind of trying to use a blanket term to describe uh, all the various religions and they'll use that term people of faith uh but but then you ask well what faith right because that term often when it's used i mean it can refer to not just not just uh christian denominations but the muslim faith or the hindu faith and and you know certainly uh, religious people have faith in something uh although most of the time what religion does is tells you to put faith in yourself and your ability to follow some standard and to earn eternal life. That's not faith that the apostle Paul's talking about. Turn to Romans chapter 3. Notice here Romans 3, uh, verse 21. And when you get into the end here of Romans chapter 3, you know, the first couple of chapters, Paul is, is taking away people's excuses and he's, he's taking away, uh, their You know, their, their reasoning that somehow their flesh could earn them eternal life. And when you get to the, the, uh, by the time you get here to the end of chapter three, he's basically pronounced everybody guilty before God. He's, he's shown just the, the utter impossibility of somehow working your way to eternal life. And so chapter 3 verse 20 says, Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall be there shall no flesh be justified in His sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference." For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, verse 24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus." You see, verse 22 talks about the the faith of Jesus Christ, right? It says, even the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ. Do you ever think about the fact that Jesus Christ had to have faith? Do you ever think about that? Um, As I mean, it's most greatly demonstrated in the garden and He says to the Father, not My will, but Thine be done. Isn't that an act of faith? Right? Isn't that isn't that really uh the same thing God calls us to do by faith, to understand what God's will is and to say, I'm just gonna subject my will to God's will? There's some things, you know, if you if you need something, some some deep truths to think about and ponder, think about that. Even Jesus Christ as God the Son, and yet in human flesh, had to exercise faith in God the Father to go to the cross. He had faith in God the Father. Jesus Christ's will was not to go to the cross. Um, you ever notice every once in a while, uh, you know, there'll be a, a movie made about the about the life of Christ, and and a lot of times Christians get all excited about that those kinds of things, but but realize most most of the time what that is is that's that's the lost world somehow trying to portray these events of the Bible. And most often, if they portray the for instance Christ in the garden, they'll somehow present it as that that uh, Satan was tempting Christ not to go to the cross. Right? Um, of course, when you read the scripture it, it talks about how the principalities of this world uh, they they were the ones who crucified the Lord of glory. Right? It wasn't that Satan didn't want him to go to the cross, but what was it that was, that was tempting Christ not to go to the cross? It was, I mean, just Christ as a man, there has a will that is not to suffer that, that pain and suffer, uh, what he knew was coming there on the, on the cross of Calvary, but what did he do? He subjected his will to the will of God the Father. And you see, it describes there how that allows God to, to uh, make his righteousness available then to those that believe. You see, it's verse 22 says, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all, it's offered to anybody, anybody who will receive it, and it's upon all them that believe. And so, the individual, by, by placing their faith in Christ, by placing their faith in the faith, that faith that's, that's revealed through God's Word, receives that gift of eternal life. Now again, you know, various denominations will, will teach various things about how to be saved, but there is only one faith. There's only one way to be saved. And that's through faith in that finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know some people try and make that so complicated i i there's a a uh, church of Christ group that that uh, meets in our area and and you know their tracks when they tell you how to be saved, they've got a list of ten things you have to do, and believing isn't even the first thing Uh that they've it, it's literally a list of ten things you have to do. uh you have to be water baptized. And, and you don't, if, if you were baptized like in a Baptist church, for believers baptism, that's not good enough. You had to be baptized by somebody who believed it was for salvation, otherwise it's not good enough, you gotta get baptized again by them. People make it so complicated. If Jesus Christ did the work, our part is to believe, we, we accept that faith, we put our faith in what He accomplished, and we receive eternal life as a free gift. And that's the one faith. And if somebody has never believed that, they may go to church faithfully. They may read the Bible, carry a Bible. They may talk about various things from the Word of God. But if somebody has has never believed that, if somebody has never uh, received that one faith, they aren't saved. and There can be no unity there. Um, they're, They're not saved. Now it's certainly true, a saved person can be led astray into all kinds of other false things. But outside of that one faith, there is no salvation. Let's go back to our text in Ephesians 4, and it says one baptism. Now here again is another one of these that's controversial. You know, some of these are more controversial than others. One baptism. Well, if there's one baptism, what is it? The Bible describes various baptisms. Um, in fact, in fact. Uh, Go over. Let's turn to some verses here. Turn to Hebrews chapter nine. Here, the writer of Hebrews is describing the Old Testament law and how it was, you know, was pointing to things that would be completed later on. Hebrews chapter nine, verse nine, it says, "Which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices." "...could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation." That word washings in verse 10 is literally baptisms, okay? Okay. You see, baptism isn't a New Testament ordinance. Water baptism is not a New Testament ordinance. It's an Old Testament ordinance. It goes right along with the meats and drinks of the Old Testament. It goes along with all of those things that that could not, I mean, even with the gifts and sacrifices, that could not make him that did the service perfect. Uh, water baptism isn't something that that begins with John the Baptist. John the Baptist was just continuing what, what had been done in the Old Testament. Now, there were some things new about John the Baptist's ministry, certainly. But you realize the, the baptism, that's an Old Testament ordinance, water baptism. Uh, it's one of those things that's, that's, you know, carried over into the New Testament and, and practiced for a time. Um, but, but Paul in his epistles describes a different baptism. And if you go to Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6. Verse 1, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid! How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so all should walk and newness of life. You know, this this issue of the one baptism maybe can be a little more a little more confusing or require a little more study because of the the nature of the topic. I mean, if you're looking at those ones in in Ephesians and you're talking about, for instance, the one Spirit or the one Lord, um, there's not you don't have to you don't have to compare that one Holy Spirit with you know other other previous spirits or, or anything like that. Uh, you know that there's one spirit of God, there's one Lord Jesus Christ, obviously there's one God the Father, and there's one and only one. But when he talks about the one baptism, you realize there's various baptisms in the Bible, and in the case of the one baptism, it's one baptism in in distinction to any others. And and so you see here, uh, I'll just give you give you some things for your own for your own study that when you're you're looking at verses that talk about baptism, there's a couple of questions that you always want to ask yourself to to bring clarity to the verse. Uh, You want to ask, one thing you want to ask is, who is doing the baptizing? Okay. Another thing you want to ask is, what is the person being baptized into? Okay. Uh, Obviously, there's passages that talk about being baptized into water. But here in Romans 6, what is it being baptized into? Verse 3 says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. We're baptized into Jesus Christ. And, and here, this one baptism, it's describing again, you know, relating back to that one body, how God takes the the individual at the time of salvation, and he places them into the body of Christ. It's a spiritual work of God that takes place, and it's a it's a spiritual baptism. Um, so you see, it's it's a baptism into Jesus Christ, and being baptized into Jesus Christ, we're identified with Christ and and his work, and his death, burial, and resurrection, and so we're baptized. Christ, it says, as many as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into His death. And so that death of Christ, you know, when you, when you move from Romans, from the first five chapters of Romans, and you get into chapters 6, 7, and 8, when you're in Romans 4, for instance, the, the work of Christ is presented as a substitutionary thing. It's something Christ did in our place. But when you get into Romans chapter 6, it's not presenting the the death and burial and resurrection of Christ as something that that Christ did you know in our place or did for us, but it's something we participate in. Now as as believers, uh, that death of Christ becomes our death. It's not just his his death in our place, but we died with him. We're buried with him. We're risen with him so that we're baptized, we're, we're placed into that death of Christ. Um, so verse 4 says, Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, some people want to add additional baptisms onto that. right? Even some people who recognize that Romans 6 is not talking about water will still believe that you know at least there's some additional water ceremony that, if it's not required, is at least recommended. Um, oftentimes if if you talk to uh, people that are in various Baptist denominations about you know where what scripture they would use to to uh, back up their teaching about water baptism, and they'll come here to Romans chapter six. but you see Romans chapter six, if you start putting water in there, then you have some real problems because you see, verse 5 says, if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. See, what, what guarantees that believers are going to be in the likeness of Christ's resurrection is that they were planted in the likeness of His death. And if being planted in the likeness of His death and being baptized into His death involves water, then that means you better be water baptized to be saved. Right. That means those Church of Christ people are right. That if you haven't been baptized there, then you, you don't have any assurance. You start putting water into a verse, verses like that and, and you wind up with some real problems. But it's not talking about water at all. It's talking again about a, a work of God. If you want some more clarity on it, go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. For as the body is one and hath many, members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be bond or free, we've been all made to drink into one Spirit. Who's doing the baptizing? Here it's the Spirit of God. It's not not being baptized with the Spirit, but it's being baptized by the Spirit. Um, And uh, we're baptized by the Spirit into... The one body of Christ. It doesn't matter whether it's a Jew or Gentile, bond or free. We've been all made to drink into that one Spirit. Okay, Let's go back to our text. Ephesians 4. And so, verse 6 says, One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And He he ends the seven there with talking about God the Father. And so, you see this, this unity in these verses. Now let's back up to verse 3 where it says endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The verses describe an, an intrinsic unity. There is a unity there among all believers, everyone who's ever believed the Gospel and that they're made members of one body. Um, they they uh, have the, the one Spirit dwelling in them. They all have one hope. They all have one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism. They've, they've all received that one baptism, whether they understand it or not. And there's one God and Father of all, right? There, there's nothing you have to keep about those things. You don't keep yourself in the body of Christ or keep anybody else in the body of Christ. That's just that's, that's who you are in that new creation. But you see, verse 3 describes keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That word, that word keep. Means to guard or to protect. Uh, you know, in in the medieval times when they would build castles, generally a castle would have like a, a town and a village around it, and you had these various levels of of protection uh, because the lords were always fighting with one another, and and uh, you know, so so they had to always be on their guard. And uh, generally, I mean, there was kind of a common pattern for these villages and, and castles. Generally, you would have some agricultural areas, and then you would have a, a wall that surrounded the village itself. Inside that village is, you would have a lot of, you know, residences and, and businesses and various things. And then at the center, you would have the castle. And the castle might have several layers of walls, but in the very inside of all of that defense and protection, usually the highest tower in that castle, was called the keep. And if you were under attack and all your other defenses failed and people breached that outer wall and they got into the village, the people in the village would all come into the into the castle. And if they breached those walls of the castle, everybody that they could get would get in the keep. And there they, they you know, hopefully, oftentimes even that was a, a failing effort, but that was where they could put up their ba- their best defenses. See, and everybody's concentrated together. And that was often where, uh, you know, the, the, uh, lords or kings would keep their wealth. The things that they wanted protected were kept in that, in that keep. And that's sort of the idea here about the unity of the Spirit. We have this intrinsic unity, but, but we have to keep unity. Now you keep unity by holding to what the bible teaches about those things, right? You keep unity by understanding those, you know, those those seven ones. And really if you take and, and study out those seven things to their fullest, I mean you have, you would have a pretty complete doctrinal statement uh, regarding the the uh, place of the church, the body of Christ and the dispensation of grace, you know, those, those seven things, I mean that's basically the doctrinal statement of the Church, the Body of Christ in this passage. And he says, keep unity, protect, guard that unity. You, you guard those things, you take and, and value those things such that you're willing to put your effort and your resources into protecting them and guarding them. Making sure that, that nothing comes in and causes you not to function as one body anymore. We, we often fail in that regard. We, we certainly, uh, you know, often put a lot of effort into, into learning all the arguments to defend those points, but sometimes we put all that effort into, into defending, defending a position, and we often fail to operate as a body. And so, you know, so, so often you see in local churches often the things that come in and cause division are, are not, I mean sometimes there are these doctrinal issues, but a lot of times they're just, just, uh, you know, various things that come up and somebody wants their way and somebody else wants their way. Uh, but you see there's a unity to be kept there. To, to recognize that intrinsic unity that we have as members of the body of Christ and then to express that in a, in an outward way and and you know, keep guard that unity that God's put in place. Uh, you see, definitely that that unity of the Spirit is a—it's a—it's a special kind of unity. It's something that exists there, whether we recognize it or not, whether we're keeping it or not. But to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we're called, to to uh, walk worthy in that way requires that we put our effort into keeping unity with one another. Not allowing things to come in and, and separate between believers now often if you if you hold to those positions you'll find there are other believers that'll separate from you but make sure if if they're going to separate make sure it's them separating from you and not not the other way not and not you making them so miserable that they that they have to separate from you all right but we each have that responsibility to Keep, to, to value that unity such that we're going to keep it. We're going to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. close there with prayer. Lord God, we thank You for these things from Your Word and for that unity that You have created, that You've made us a part of, the body of Christ. We pray that we would be aware of it as we speak to one another, that we would speak to one another as members of the same body, that we would uh, deal with one another and, and act toward one another in a way that is worthy, that we would recognize uh, who you've made us to be in Christ, we pray that as we you know as we as we read and hear about Christians around the world, that we wouldn't view ourselves as being separate from them, but that we would recognize that unity that we that we have together with with all saints throughout this dispensation of grace. That uh, we're all members of that same body, and that we would recognize in our our own lives that the things that we do and say affect the entire body. That that uh, what we allow in our lives affect all of the the members, some more directly than others, but affect all of the members of the body of Christ. And and uh, what a what a uh, a great duty and responsibility that you've given us with regard to keeping that unity, and and we know how insufficient we are in our flesh. We know our our flesh more often wants to divide than to to unite, but we uh, pray that you would teach us to rest upon your grace and your strength in keeping that unity of the Spirit. We thank you in Jesus' name. Hi, I'm Richard Church, the teacher here on Verse by Verse. I'm glad you've listened to our podcast today, and I would like to let you know that if you have any questions about anything you've heard here, you can contact me by email at richard at richardchurch.com or by telephone 608-339-9522. I also encourage you to check out our church website at www.friendshipbiblechurch.com.